Brent and Tanya are still down sick. That means, you get me? So, hi. Oh, thank you, thank you. Brent is watching online, so be careful. He's also taking note of who's clapping and who's not. He, he assured me of that this week. So, <laughs> um, they, uh, they were in Israel for a couple of weeks hosting a tour and then came back. And right as they were on their way back, I got a text message and he was like, hey, pray for me, I'm not feeling well. And... <laughs> Strep and COVID, I, I, I think he's probably not feeling well. So they are on the mend, though. Um, you know, he's done really, really well. He's not snipped at Tanya. Um, she hasn't snipped at him. They did snip at Dexter a couple of times, but it's okay. He's a dog. He's used to it. So um, they did ask for Dexter's forgiveness, and he was, in, he was in therapy with me this week, and he's doing okay. He's doing okay. So um, today and tomorrow. So real quick before we get into the sermon... Um, tomorrow is new for us. So we have never done a official day of atonement, also known in Hebrew as Yom HaKippurim, if you want to be technical. I don't like to be technical, so I, Yom Kippur is the more common used. Uh, this is a day traditionally in Judaism. It's considered to be one of the holiest days of the year. It is a very somber day. You'll hear a lot of times, even with Matthew today, talking about fasting. Fasting comes from the affliction of oneself. Traditionally in Judaism, that's fasting. If you are part of any of the Instagram diet fads, that's not really an affliction. It has become your lifestyle. So intermittent fasting could also be called intermittent affliction. So uh, really, it's a time to afflict one's soul. So Judaism as a whole teaches that as fasting. Uh, honestly, if you fast on a regular basis, it's really not an affliction. And so a lot of times for, for my family, we, we refrain from things that we find great pleasure in. So I mean, I like food, don't get me wrong. Ian knows he's been on the road with me while they're looking at some cool things to do in Oklahoma, which all of the websites lie. The blue whale is not that great. You can sue me, Chris, at hebraicfamily.com. It was memorable, but you know what was memorable was the cheeseburger at the little hole-in-the-wall diner, so I'm just saying. So food is not really a thing for me, so personally I choose to, uh, I choose to abstain from other things during that day because they're things I enjoy. And they afflict me more than it is to not eat food for 24 hours or not drink water or whatever. Also, there's nowhere in the scripture does it say it is your job to afflict the other persons in your house. That's not the day of atonement. That's not Yom Kippur. So if you are a, a, a real donkey because you fast from food and you get hangry or whatever it is, I, I, whatever your thing is... Um, that's not the point of the day. The point of the day is not to make your spouse afflicted. It's not to make your brothers and sisters afflicted. It's to afflict yourself. Why? Because it's a, it's a holy day. It's a day where everybody comes. A couple of weeks ago we were talking about humility and bringing your offering during this time. And everybody in Israel came and brought your offering. Which means... That person that you don't have a good relationship with, that person that, that maybe you got sideways with and you never really repaired that relationship, there's a high probability as you're bringing your, your bull, your goat, your calves, your turtle doves, all the different offerings that were there as you're bringing that, you're standing in the offering line going up to see the temple service and you're like, oh my gosh, there's that dude. Why? Because everybody was commanded to bring the same thing and then the priest went through the service and there was a scapegoat. And so... We're going to do our first service tomorrow night, which will at sundown kick off Yom Kippur. And honestly, it's going to look a little bit different if you've done services. I've been a part of uh, some services for the Day of Atonement. And it, it is straight out of Judaism, straight out of Chabad. It's straight out of traditions and customs and stuff like that. And while I personally don't believe there's anything wrong with customs or traditions, as long as they don't take away from the commandments, at the center of this church, at the center of our faith, should be Jesus. And so if Jesus isn't at the center of our Yom Kippur and our Day Atonement service, then you're still relying on the blood of bull and goats, and there is no temple. So you cannot bring blood of bull and goats. I am not Aaron, and I am not a high priest. I'm just a tall priest, technically. Technically. 
I mean, I guess it's legal in Oklahoma now, so I could be a high priest. You never know. But, uh, but it's almost legal everywhere. So, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a high priest. I'm just a tall priest. So if we're relying on the blood of bull and goats to be the atonement, to be the sacrifices, there is no temple in Jerusalem. There is no Levitical priesthood. And so we have to rely on our high priest, the high priest after the order of the Melchizedek line, the high priest from the line of David. And tomorrow night at 6 p.m., we're going to have a service that is Jesus-centered. At Dr- I need to clarify this because this has become a real source of, of contention and communication. Draper Park Christian Church. That is a church. It's not a park. So, Sykes. That's a church. So we're meeting at a church. We're not meeting at a park. I had some people say, like, are we supposed to bring lawn chairs? Please don't. They have pews. Please don't. These people don't really know us. And I want to make a good impression on Pastor Justin up there at Draper Park and anybody who comes from their church. Don't bring the rocker. And you just pull it up in the front row and you're just like, I'm ready for Yom Kippur. Like, we're not doing that, okay? We're not doing that. So tomorrow night, 6 p.m., we're going to have our first ever Day of Atonement service. Uh, we'll have some worship. We'll have some liturgy. Pastor Justin from Draper Park Christian Church will be involved in the service as well. And then um, you get me again because Brent is still down. And so I'll be delivering a Yom Kippur message. And I'll actually be tying up the message for today. So because I'm preaching back-to-back days, I can kind of set up tomorrow's message a little bit today. And then we can conclude tomorrow. Um, The Feast of Tabernacles is coming up. It is next Friday, is check-in, Lake Murray in Ardmore. We will not be having, I can't stress this enough, we will not be having in-person services. That means those doors will not be open and we will not be here. We won't be here. We won't be here. Every time this happens, somebody shows up and then they send a message and they're like, you never told us. It's like, it's been on the website for four months. It's on social media. And now your tall priest is telling you again. Father Frankie is telling you no service the next two weeks. Okay. We will have a broadcast for those who, who can't take off work and who don't have plans on coming to Ardmore or whatever. That's totally fine. We're not taking, not taking attendance or anything like that. We, we haven't had conversations about you. But uh, we won't be doing it here. So there will be a broadcast on YouTube and on Facebook for those who are at home who still want to get a message for the week. But otherwise, we'll have our toes in the water. Lord says you're allowed to have some fun. Anybody who's seen me fish, I don't know that that's what I would classify fun. Though. So, but we're, we're going to try. We're going to learn new things. We're going to be tested. We're going to grow outside our bounds. So if you're new this week, no service the next two weeks as we will be camping in Ardmore. What child is this? Anybody who knows me knows that I love to take Christmas songs and use them as sermon titles because for many, many years we've gotten so sideways and so afraid and so wrapped up that like anything Christmas is just like bad. And then we give Purim a pass and we give Hanukkah a pass and we give all these other days that are made up a pass. Fourth of July is okay, but you know. Let's not talk about anything else that talks about Jesus. And so whenever I get an opportunity to reference a a Christmas song, um, I'm going to do it, especially when it ties into a much deeper theological conversation. So today's message is entitled, What Child Is This? And in order to understand the answer to that question, as full Bible believers, we have to start in the book of Genesis. So In Genesis, God created man in his image, and he created woman out of man, and he desired to walk in a relationship. I want us to remember that, because from where a lot of us come from, it is the regulation, the rules, the constitution first, and that defines. And we'll say Jesus is first, or Jesus is higher, or whatever, but actions speak louder than words. And so there's there's a wrestling with what does that mean, and you know, we swing the pendulum too far, and we do all those things. In the beginning, God created Adam, put Adam to sleep, 
created Eve, Haba, out of Adam, and then desired to walk in a relationship with him. During that time in the biblical narrative, we see that God had instructed Adam on two regulations. This is why I can make this statement. When you look at the 613 commandments that are instructions for the Israelites in the Old Testament, and you look at the over 1,000 commandments that are listed or instructed on by Jesus the Messiah, God in the flesh, we struggled with two. So the 1,600 plus, I need you to understand something. You're going to struggle with them. And it's okay. God did not intend for you to be a robot or perfection. So I just need you to understand that. Because especially during this season when we get into the Day of Atonement, we talk about offerings and a scapegoat where all the sins of Israel were sent out into the wilderness. Some people get all bound up real quick and it's like, I had a rough year. Is God going to give me grace and mercy? Yes, he is. Yes, he is, because the Bible tells me so. In Genesis, there were two. He instructed Adam to tend the garden, to protect it. We like that one as men. You know, especially in Oklahoma where you have a right to bear arms. You know, we like to protect. But it also means to work it. It means you've got to do something. You till the ground, put some effort in. You can't just, you can't just sit back in your, with your Yeti and your, your nine and you're like, I'm doing, I'm tending the garden there, God. No, no, it's an action to keep it up, to keep it up. Any of you who've gone through counseling with my wife or I, you know this is a big thing for me. What are you doing in your daily life? If you don't keep up your house, if you don't keep up your cars, if you can't vacuum things out, my kids, my kids will tell you. If you don't keep it up, then spiritually, are you practicing in the physical? If, if you can't keep up the, the drywall, if you can't, whether you're paying for it or you're doing your best to fix it, whatever, then what are you doing in your spiritual life? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Those are the two. Work, protect, keep up the garden. That includes his wife. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which is interesting then, because when you fast forward to the days where God is walking, not in the garden, but he's walking amongst the earth, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 40, they say, hey, teacher, what is the greatest commandments of the law? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with your mind. Hmm. Well, isn't God the tree of life? Yes. Yeah, God is the tree of life. He's the only one who gives life. He's the only one who can bestow life. And he's the only one who can save life. It is God, the tree of life. And then love your neighbor as yourself. You have to protect each other, tend to each other, and keep up relationships in a healthy manner. So interestingly enough, when you look at the story of Matthew's writings of the conversation with Jesus on what are the two greatest commandments, they parallel the two commandments in the garden of God to the first creation. Yet Adam and Eve fell prey to the works of the adversary, and they disobeyed God. And through this disobedience, we see shame, guilt, self-condemnation, and struggles, the same that many in this room have. But yet, it wasn't God who brought those. It was us who brought those. Because when God calls out in the book of Genesis, and he says, Adam, Eve, where are you? He already knew they had sinned. He already knew they had disobeyed. And so, once again, I want to go back to a couple of weeks ago. We have this distorted viewpoint in our mind that God is an abusive husband. That somehow when we mess up, that he's going to come down and he's just going to smack you into submission and he's going to beat you into the ground. And yet he knew that they had disobeyed him. And he said, hey guys, where are you? I can't find you. You missed our, our coffee time. Hey, what's going on? Over here. Why are you hiding? He didn't say, I know you're over there. You're about to get whooped. He said, why are you hiding? He said, we are naked. And his response was, who told you you were naked? He had opportunities to let them know that he already knew. 
He had opportunities to come with, with grace and mercy off to the side and be your shame and your, your, your guilt and your condemnation. Let me bring to you my judgment and my righteousness. That he could have chosen to do that, and he would have been well within his rights to do so. But he didn't. He chose to come with grace and mercy. You see, many times this is an errant imagery that we like, to, we like to agree with so that we can continue to perpetuate our shame, our guilt, and our self-condemnation. Jesus didn't hang on a cross willingly so that you could perpetuate your self-condemnation and to, to spiral around in your trauma drama. He hung on a cross so you could be set free. So just as much as we don't willy-nilly go about just, I'm going to sin or I'm going to transgress today, just as much as we don't do that, we can't also nullify the power and the gifting that Jesus gave to us by Him willingly taking on the burden. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far He has removed our transgressions from us. Amen. But it doesn't mean that they just poof the magic dragon and they're gone. It means he, you're carrying the yoke of the burden. And when you ask, he removes it, and he says, I've got you. And now he carries it. Just like he carried that cross throughout the entire city for each and every one of us. God's entire desire was not to use some sort of executive authority to be a bad leader, to be a judge that was, was unrighteous, in his manner of judgment, he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. In this season, more than any season, we need to understand that. We need to know that. Because as you go into the cycles of the fall feast days and into judgment and atonement, you have to understand God's plan when he created you wasn't to kill you. It wasn't to abuse you. It says that's what the devil does. He seeks to kill and destroy. God's plan was to cause you to live. The tree of life. He was a good, good father. In every other one of those cliche Chris Tomlin songs. That was his goal. Was to protect you. This is why I said, don't eat of the knowledge of good and evil. Can you imagine what your life would be like if you never had to lock your doors because you never had the fear of somebody coming in your home? Can you imagine what your life would be like if you never had the fear of, of, of sexual sins or financial sins or physical violence? Or any, Can you imagine what your life would be like if we never would have had the knowledge of good and evil and we would have just lived in life? He came so that we could have life and life abundantly. And today, before we get into the various different covenants, if you're dealing with guilt, shame, condemnation, if you believe the lies of your friends or family members who have told you that this is what defines you, I just want to let you know that the Bible says that your identity is in Jesus and Jesus alone. You die of yourself and you're born again into a new creation. And yes, we do wrestle with things. We're not perfection. I'm not perfection. We wrestle all the time. But those wrestles and missteps do not define who you are. God defines who you are when you are found in Him. And if you're not found in Him, then you define who you are. And that should cause a little bit of guilt, shame, and condemnation. Because the Bible doesn't say when you sin. It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which again, I'm just, sidebar, still trying to figure out why we can't have more confessions in a church, guys. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we can't come into church and we can't say, hey, look, I had a really bad week this week because this is what was going on. Or you can't call a brother or a sister and go get coffee or, or, or go have a beer. I'm sorry, you're allowed to have a beer in the Bible. You can't do those types of things because it's like, they can't know I have a problem. I know you all have problems. And I let you know all about mine. 
Why? Because that's what the Bible says to do. The Bible does not say to become a cult and to become cookie cutter. It does not say that we should look the same, we should talk the same. One of the most beautiful things, and guys from the roots of Christianity, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. So somehow we all got to look alike? So every tribe and every nation, everything is off the lineage of Hitler? Off the mentality of him? No. No. Every tribe, every language, every tongue. This is one of the beautiful things about Jesus. Every tribe, every language, every tongue. Doesn't matter whether you're homeschool, public school, private school. You're rich, you're poor. You're tall, you're skinny, you're fat. Doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. Bible says, it don't matter what you look like. Don't matter how much money you have. You're a sinner and you have sinned. Game, set, match. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that even yet, while we were sinners, even yet, while we were still figuring out the mess of this world, even yet, when we were trying to draw close to your presence, even yet, when we hadn't won the war against whatever our sin is, whatever our struggle is, whatever our flesh is, even yet, while we were still there, that you sent your son to die for us, that he gave his life willingly, that he took the cup of wrath, that he rose again, he resurrected to the right hand of you, Lord, and all authority and majesty and power is to him. During this season when we look at atonement and we look at covenants and we look at relationships and we look at the narrative of the word of God that you have given us, Lord, prick our hearts. Teach us to become more like you. And teach us to honor you in everything that we do. For it's in the name of Yeshua we ask all things. Amen and amen. Through the fall of man, God gives us the entire biblical narrative of him attempting to restore his original design. His original design wasn't the Torah, and it wasn't to do away with the Torah. We keep going back to like the meat and potatoes, the peanut butter and the jelly, and we just have like gluten-free bread, non-gluten-free bread, sourdough bread. I don't care how much crunchy mama you are. We keep forgetting about what is on the outside before and after. But yet we see this play out in Genesis chapter 4 through Genesis 8 where God enters into a relationship with Noah. Okay, so we already know that God entered into a relationship with Adam and Eve. That was his desire. He wanted to walk in the garden. He wanted to talk in the garden. And even while they had like literally the cheapest clothes ever, like they just found some leaves out there. Like he was like, who told you you were naked? And then he made the decision, and sometimes people get errant on the theology. It's like, well, look, leaves weren't enough. This is why bikinis aren't enough. So let's get into a purity modesty culture here and talk about what God slayed an animal and covered them from shoulder to shoulder. That wasn't the intention. God was saying you were supposed to be co-heirs. You're like heirs. And even though you didn't do your part, I'm going to do mine. I'm going to do mine. Yes, there's an if-then chart. Anybody use that at home? I have an if-then chart. If you do this, then this is the consequences. There is still the if-then chart. If you do this, there's a consequence that comes with that, but it doesn't change the fact that if God has to levy a consequence in your life, he still loves you. Parents, when you have to levy a consequence on your child because they do stupid stuff, you still love them. Just sometimes you want to end them close to the end of life. Not to the end of life, just... Genesis chapter 4 through Genesis chapter 8, God then decides he's going to enter into a relationship with Noah and all of creation through his relationship with Noah. Despite the depravity of the creation, God will never flood the earth again. He gives him a promise. He gives him a promise. This is important because humanity still had the same commands. Hey, don't eat that tree. Already did it. And tend where you're planted. Well, we know what happens immediately is start murder and homosexuality and we do what we do we screw things up we screw things up as humans we spiral down the rabbit hole of depravity and God has to step in and says despite the depravity of creation God will never flood the earth again he gives them a promise the rainbow every time we see the rainbow it is a physical sign for us to see of something that happened a long time ago that God is still God was God will be God we are not 
That's his promise. We can bank on that. You can't bank on the Republican Party, the Democrat Party. You can't bank on money or Bitcoin or anything else. But you sure as H-E double hockey sticks can bet on God. You can bet on God. That's a great return on investment. Because the truth is you really didn't put anything in. He did it all. Genesis chapter 9, the Noah covenant is unconditional. God makes this covenant and executes the covenant and promises through the sign of the rainbow that this covenant will be through future generations. It's an unconditional covenant. God's going to do it. God's going to execute it. And you can't screw it up. Yet, even when God enters into the Noah covenant, he had a covenant with Adam. Don't do these things. You'll have life. They fail. Noah. Noah covenant. I'm going to do these things whether you fail or not. And we failed. And he still executed his perfect will on our behalf. He keeps his part of the covenant. Yet, violence and death in the same the same thing God said he was going to wipe out. He was, he was going to try to slow the depravity of the human heart by wiping out everybody except for Noah, who said his family was righteous, and the animals so that we could have Chick-fil-A. God sees the same thing happen. Violence, death, spirals, spirals, spirals. Genesis 9, then we're into Genesis 12. We're not even out of the book. We already got two covenants, two massive failures by two people who were chosen by God. Genesis 12 through Genesis 17, we see that God establishes then a relationship with a guy by the name of Abram. Changes his name to Abraham. All the little kids, you guys are in here today because it's junior youth. There's this amazing song that was sang before uh, I was a part of Sabbath school. Yes, that one right there, Izzy. Yes. We, okay, so I'm going to interpret the tongues. He said, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And then they would go like, right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. Yeah. And that's how Pentecostal was born. They laughed at that one. You could have played the drums. Genesis 12 to 17, we see the relationship with Abraham. And like the Noah covenant, the Abraham covenant was a sign. There was a sign to that one, but it wasn't a rainbow. Men, y'all got me on this one. There's a sign to this covenant. And it doesn't feel the greatest, but thankfully you're small. If you're an adult and you do it, it definitely doesn't feel the greatest. I've known a couple of those, and their stories are horrendous. So I like to thank my mom publicly for doing it while I was a child. But there's a sign. It's male circumcision. That is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant of Abraham with God. That is the human part of that. Personally, I don't think Abraham knew, but I'm guessing when he's up in the kingdom right now, he's like, why couldn't I have the Noah covenant? Why couldn't I just built an ark? Why, God, why? And he was like, I knew you were, you were, you had a higher threshold of pain than Noah. Like, come on. God is infinite in his wisdom. But it was male circumcision that was a sign, not only for that generation that the relationship with God, but for future generations. Why is this important? Fathers, your sons, future generations, they might look like your wife. They might have a different hair color. You might have adopted them into your household. But this is a sign that you can say they are God's. And every male can have it. Abraham was put to sleep. And then God walks through the ceremony of what's commonly known as the covenant of the pieces. I like to believe, again, I didn't write this scripture, and I'm definitely not God, but I like to believe that that was the image of the invisible God, Jesus in the flesh, who walked through the pieces for Abram in that covenant. Yet this covenant is conditional and it's unconditional. See, we have... We have the games are changing a little bit. Noah's covenant was unconditional. This one, there's a conditional element to it and an unconditional element to this covenant. Abraham must leave his land, circumcise his male offspring, and do what is right and just in his actions, and God will give him the land 
and bless the entire world through his lineage. So God's up in the game on the responsibility. Hmm, why is this unheard of? Anybody who's had children, Jess, who like to be very testy in the boundaries of life, I've got a couple of those, first time as a parent you say, don't touch the stove, it'll burn you. You know what's going to happen. Not only did I have them touch the stove, I had a daughter who literally took a frying pan and busted the glass top. So there's an elevation of what happens. But once they touch the stove and then they keep going back to the stove, you're like, I'm asking you, please, don't do this. It's not even for my benefit. Like, I don't care. You're the one who's going to get hurt. Like, I care if I have to go sit in in the emergency room with you on a burn. But like, this is not going to hurt me. This is going to hurt you. And after they keep going back and they keep going back and they keep going back, finally you're like, all right, I'm not stupid. So you're not allowed in the kitchen anymore. You have to ask permission to come in the kitchen. So now we move the boundaries backwards because we're tired of being reactionary. Well, here's the God of all creation, which is saying, all right, you guys can't handle two things. So now you're going to have to prove to me that you believe the covenant, see the covenant, want to walk in the covenant, and I'm going to do my part. So he's up in the game on the Abrahamic covenant. The book of Exodus then opens with Abraham's offspring multiplying so rapidly that they become a threat to Pharaoh and his kingdom. And what happens? Pharaoh's ego, he becomes a threat to Pharaoh's kingdom. And Pharaoh's like, I have to enslave them. And he enslaves those people into the land of Egypt. Yet Abraham's descendants cry out. They cry out to their covenantal God. And he raises up a leader, Moses. And Moses is sent, empowered by God, to lead people out of Egypt. At Sinai, then, God attempts to establish, reestablish the covenant relationship with the Israelites, similar to the garden. See, that's one of the things we forget when we talk about going back to Sinai and we talk about how we incorporate the constitution of the holy nation into our life. Because obviously, you know, just because you say Jesus is your salvation doesn't mean that you can turn around and live like Jesus isn't your salvation. Obviously, then your actions don't back up. The, the fruit of your works do not manifest the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which means then what other spirit are you in cooperation with? And when, what we forget about when we talk about Sinai is that before there was a constitution, before there was tablets, which ends up being multiple tablets because, again, of us, the depravity of humanity. Before Moses ascended as a representative to the mountaintop, God wanted to be our king and he wanted to be the one who talked directly with us. But what happened? Israel, where are you? Israel, hey, Moses, you got to go. We might as well have said, God, we're over here, we're naked. It's the same thing. Shame, guilt, fear. We didn't know how to be in the presence of a holy God. Our ancestors didn't know anything different than was in the garden. It's the same thing. God wants to reestablish that relationship with us as a people. He wants to be our God and us to be his people. And we're like, sorry, trolling. Hey, you just got voted to go to the top of the mountain. See you, bro. Tell us what it's like. We'll see you when you get back. It's not what God's intention was. His intention was to bring them out of slavery and not give them another Pharaoh, even a good Pharaoh. It was for him to be their king and their God again. So Moses meets with God on the mountain to hear the terms of what we know as the Mosaic Covenant. See, there's all kinds of covenants throughout the Scripture. We're just talking about there's an old covenant and a new covenant. Oh, well, in the Day of Atonement, there's this, there's that. No, these are progressive covenants between God and people throughout the entire narrative of the Bible, and they play on top of each other. One doesn't necessarily nullify the other one. They all build. But what are they building towards? If you're at any point in time on the timeline of the Bible here, you only get what you get. You only, if, you were, if you were around in Noah's time, you weren't even around to tell anybody in Abraham's time about what happened. I mean, maybe you put something in a cave or something, uh, but like you weren't around. You're somewhere in the bottom of the, wherever the ocean was. 
And I ain't even getting into that because that's a whole mess. Everybody's like, oh, we got to find the ark. As if like the ark's got some like Nicolas Cage power. Like we're all just going to like suit up and power up and like God's going to appear because we found some driftwood. Okay. God promises to make Israel into a holy nation and spread them with glory to the nations. The Mosaic Covenant. Yet in return for God to do those things, we must do something. So again, there's, there's two parties. We must obey the laws given, and in obedience it will bring blessing. And then there's curses if we disobey. If we ignore our part of the agreement, if we disobey, there's curses. And the Lord takes them through the wilderness, teaching them how to walk in trust, breaking the bondage of slaves, and attempting to teach them how to be kings and priests. It's attempting to. A lot of times we talk about the wilderness as some sort of negative situation. It's like, oh, I'm in my wilderness experience. I hope we're in our wilderness experience. Because when we go into the wilderness, we're slaves, which means we have some errant type of thought process in our mind of how to think. And God is literally saying, I understand you better than you understand yourself. So if I say you don't understand this, step here and stop. You are in the best possible place because not, you're not watching some sort of YouTube life coach here. This isn't some guy who's like, hey, by the way, pay me $3,000 a month for me to life coach you so I can teach you how to do things your parents should have taught you when you were younger. This is God of all creation who knows every strand of DNA in you who says, I know the things you're not even willing to tell your life coach or your therapist. And so I'm asking you to step and stop. And if you step and stop, I will lead you to the next destination. The wilderness is not some sort of judgment per se. It is God trying to take you from being a slave to sin, death, the world, and turn you into a holy nation. If you're in your wilderness experience, you better be praising. Because in the wilderness, they actually saw a pillar of fire and a cloud. Nowadays, it's like if something happens, we're like, was that the Holy Spirit? Is that emotionalism? I don't know. What level of charismatic were you? Like, a snake's coming next? Like, I have a phobia of snakes, so I have not been delivered from that yet. So I'm just, again, confess your sins. The wilderness gets a bad rap. Yet God knew that the Israelites were slaves. They had a slave mentality, and in order for them to reduce the amount of slave mentality in them and walk as a holy nation in a kingdom of priests to get back to the garden where they were co-heirs with God. The only way they could get there is if God himself led them and taught them. But we did what we did. Moses didn't even get back from his men's retreat on the mountain before they built a calf. Guys? Guys? Listen up. The wilderness experience, the Mosaic Covenant, should teach us something. And that is, is that we all wrestle with wanting to be our own gods. We all wrestle with being our own gods. God needs to be your God, and we need to be his people. They then demand a king, but yet God wanted to be their king. So Saul was anointed as a king. 70% of Israel's leadership and kingship were bad kings, according to the scripture. He fails to lead them towards God, and he's replaced by David. Oop, another major milestone. Everybody knows David. Book of Psalms. He was Chris Tomlin before Chris Tomlin was Chris Tomlin. And thankfully, Chris Tomlin wears clothes. So this now enters us into a time frame where there's the Davidic covenant. David does what God asked him, and he restores the order of the kingdom, and he wants to glorify God by building God a house called the temple. And God responds by making a covenant with him. We act like covenants. We act like there's only two, and that's like just like done, and like we're just, are we new covenant, old covenant? Are we both covenant? Is it a renewed covenant? This covenant's all the time throughout the scripture, and they're progressive in a way to lead us back to God's original intention. And if we do believe from a Hebrew mentality, it's cyclical. So when God says there's nothing new under the sun, he's taking us back to what was the beginning. The end should be the beginning. The beginning should be the end in theory, if we're right. 
And I'm not saying we're right, but we like to think that. And at the same point in time, it could also be Greek thinking and it could be linear. Oh, mind blown. Wow. Chris at HebraicFamily.com. If David continues to lead his family and the people in accordance with God's instructions, God will in turn make David's legacy great and raise up other leaders that will lead the Israelites forever. What happens? Everybody knows the story. David was amazing. And he was. He was. Until. Until. And then he was basically a soap opera. He was a soap opera. Anything he wanted, he got. That's what power does. That's what greed does. Anything you want, you get. And people started justifying it. They started acting like, well, he, he's allowed to have that. But David as a whole was a righteous man. That's what the scripture says. He was a man after God's heart. So that tells you that God does not expect us as human beings to be perfect. But he does expect us to try to honor our commitments to the relationships and the covenants that he makes with us. Yet David doesn't keep up his end, yet God once again keeps his promises and raises up multiple leaders, faithful descendants from David's lineage. Well, David didn't hold up his end of the bargain, and many of the offspring of, of David and the Israelites that were in those kingdoms did not as well. You see this all throughout the prophets. Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Yet all these covenants continue to build upon one another to David, and then the prophets come, and the prophets foretell the rebellion of God's people from the line of David, and that because of that, because of this, and I don't know like if God had some like, like number. Every person has a metric of what they can, they cannot do, but some reason this was God's like, okay, nail in the coffin, straw that broke the camel's back, this was that moment, and God says, it's time for that redeemer. It's time for that mediator from the line of David that will come. Moshiach ben David, Messiah ben David, Jesus the Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. Yet the prophets foretell this time, this guy will be different. He's not going to be David. He's not going to be Noah. He's not going to be Moses. There's all elements and attributes of the covenants that God has with those people at those times that Jesus then walks in, but none of them had all the same attributes that Jesus is going to have. And so again, you have a progression of an entire story and a narrative that's building off each other to a climax. There has to be a time in the movie where Thanos has gotten all of the, the stones and he's about ready to just flip it and end it. And there has to be a time in the movie where the good guy steps in and says, no, and most likely what's going to happen if they write it right, which they're on strike right now, so we'll see. But most of the time when that happens, that means the good guy is going to die to save the world. I'm going to give the sacrifice. This leader, this savior, this king won't be like others. This one will bring a new covenant. Yes, that's right. I said new covenant. One that he will keep. And he will restore. One that he does. Which again is not new. Because God always upheld his part of the covenantal relationships before. Even when we failed, God upheld his. So what do you think is going to happen when God comes in the flesh? Oop. This was the one Sunday I didn't show up. Any given Sunday. No, God in the flesh is going to do exactly what God the Father in the heavenly realm did, which means he's going to keep his part of that covenant. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel tell of an everlasting nature of this covenant king, one that would restore that very nature of God's original intent for his creation, and one that could atone for the sins and the transgressions of the previous covenants. One who would restore all that was broken in all previous covenants. One of the beautiful things when we talk about fulfill, he didn't abolish, he fulfilled. Yeah, he did. 
He 100% fulfilled what we were unable and unwilling to fulfill. Both parts. His part, which God did fulfill, and our part. And there's all kinds of Hebraic undertones, you know, talking about that with Ian, the divorce and the death and then the will and all those types of things. Some of that's talked about in, in the book of Hebrews. And we're going we're gonna to spend a little bit of time tomorrow in the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews changes everything. You have to understand the book of Hebrews as full Bible believers to understand the progression of the narrative of the covenants. And when you don't, you're just out void. You keep trying to do it on your own. If I brought the best goat this year and the best bull this year, maybe God will have mercy on me. Where are you going to bring the bull and the goat? Not to my place. Please don't bring it to my place. We have an HOA. Like, <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. Don't bring it to Sakota either. Come on. That's a state park. Like, we already get a bad rap as it is. Don't do anything that's going to make us look even more cultish. Like, please. Like, bring hockey stack. That's a little weird, Sykes. Once again, you're on my radar today. It's because you're eye level. You can bring hockey sack. No bulls, no goats, no turtle doves. We're not doing that type of offering system anymore. New covenant. New covenant that builds off the others. It doesn't abolish the others. It builds off the others. So, again, I'm not the high priest. We don't have a temple. We're not setting up a temple. Don't bring it to my house. HOA. Okay? No trauma drama. Okay? Matthew chapter 26 and Luke 22 tell us exactly who this king is. So, what child is this? What child could preserve the world the same way that the infinite God, Yahweh, did with Noah. That could redeem like Yahweh did with Abraham. And that could preserve a holy nation that God established with Moses. And then shepherd forever like God established in David. And yet through the seed of a woman and the depravity of our human heart, could provide creation that was born again through water, the power to be born again through the Spirit. What baby could do that? What child could do that? Aton and Elias, do you think you could do that? That doesn't, I'm not confident in that at all. I'm not confident in that, nope. And so what child is this that was born of a woman that laid in Mary's lap in some sort of sukkah-like outdoor manger. It wasn't glitzy. It wasn't glam. It wouldn't have even gotten raided. Priceline would not even offer you a night at that inn in this place. They had higher standards, and yet he's born in a barn when they needed a king who could take a sword and take down the Romans the same way Moses was sent back to take out the Egyptians and lead them out. And yet this time God says, the baby that came out of the Nile is going to be more of how Moses was like Messiah because he was going to be born in a lowly place. A baby who was born while the shepherds were watching. And the angel sang. What child is this that would come when we thought bulls and goats were our future? What child is this? The offspring of Abraham who blessed all nations. Worship team, you can come. Greater than Noah by flooding the earth with the baptism of the power of the Holy Spirit and putting a new heart and writing the covenant agreement on our hearts. Everything progresses. We want to go back to tablets of stone, and yet he says, I'm going to write it on tablets of your heart, the flesh of your heart. 
We're looking that if we offer the right sacrifice and we open the right veils and we do the right things, that somehow we might see and feel the power of the Spirit of God like was in the temple. But he says, hey, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to send my Spirit. It's going to inhabit a temple of flesh, a tabernacle of flesh. It's going to come. He's going to give his life. He's going to willingly take on all the burdens of the world, all the sins of the world. He's going to die. He's going to resurrect again. And at that point in time, he's going to send his spirit to the world so that whoever believes in him, the temples of flesh and blood, can now receive the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about just one room, one guy wearing a tunic in white linen. We're talking about them all. So if there isn't a temple, And I'm not speaking against the commandments of God. I'm not speaking against the customs of Judaism and how they practice those things in any way. There's beauty in those. But we have two choices during this season. We can go to a wall and we can wail and we can be afraid and we can say, God, we need a temple. God, we need a Savior. Or we can realize the fact that throughout the history of time, God has been progressing the covenants and the relationships between people. And while one didn't just go away because he started another one, and that's the beautiful thing about where we're at as a body, is that standing here as Jesus believers, we can find beauty in the Noah covenant. We can find beauty in the Davidic covenant. We can find beauty in the Mosaic covenant. We can look to how we walk, how we do our talk, and how we do our dance with the Lord every single day. But we don't have to wait. You have to come to me and say, hey, look, tie a rope around your waist. I pray to God you've done what's right and you can atone for me in there because the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice was the atonement for all. It was the sacrifice for all. This is Christ the King whose shepherds guard and angels sing. Hail, hail and bring him joy the son of Mary. We do have a high priest. The Bible makes it abundantly clear who our high priest is. It's the same high priest from the Garden of Eden. Eden. It was his intention to have the same high priest in every covenant. That was his intention. The progressive nature of the covenants of God lead us to something we did not have before him. If I'm going to go buy a house. The bank wants to know, can this guy guarantee that he's not going to default on his loan? Can this guy put down the money he says he's going to put down? They want a guarantee. They want somebody to guarantee that if you're going to go buy a business, then just walk in, got a great business plan. There's a $10 million facility over there. Go ahead and give me the money. Based upon what? You want to enter into a contract, into a covenant with, with, with this bank? Based upon what? I'm good for it. The Bible says we've never been good for it. The Bible says we have literally never been good at keeping our end of the contract. There's some, been some really good women and men throughout the entirety of the scripture, but they've never kept their end of the covenant. God always has. So we needed a guarantor. We needed somebody who would go broker this relationship on behalf of us. I like to think I'm a pretty good mediator, but this dude makes me look horrible. This guy should have actually written the art of the deal. This guy is the perfection of guarantees and mediation. And not only that, gave himself as a ransom for all, according to 2 Timothy. Tomorrow we'll gather at 6 p.m. at Draper Park Christian Church before the sun sets, sun sets around 7.25 tomorrow. So we'll go into the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Yom Kippur. And we'll pick up, now that we've looked at 
the progressive nature of the Bible telling us about these different covenants. And we'll look at the child who came to guarantee and mediate our place in the kingdom. Noah couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. They were all pieces and leaders used by God to move forward towards something that I believe was inevitable. And just like in Abraham, and just like in the days of Noah, God was going to have to step in. Because every time he tried to allow us to get back, every time he allowed us the free will to make the decisions, we continued to spiral down the drain in the toilet. And he did not create creation to be anything other than beautiful and a reflection of the creator. The blood of bulls and goats annually allowed us to get through another cycle. And sooner or later, we were going to have to find something that wasn't temporal. Because the Bible says sooner or later these were going to be temporal, but the kingdom of God is not temporal. Sooner or later there had to be a way back. And so, somewhere between January 1st and December 31st on the Gregorian calendar, God came to a barn with Mary and Joseph. As a child, helpless, and I have to think is in awe as Mary and Joseph were at that moment. And even though God had told them who was coming, I cannot imagine that they they fully were prepared for what was going to happen. He was still a dad, and he was still she was still a mom. Yet, heaven touched earth that night. The angels extolled. And little did our ancestors know. This was the moment that everybody had been waiting for. This was the one that everybody had been waiting for. Tomorrow, we're going to come in somber. We're going to honor and respect the traditions that have happened before. We don't go willy-nilly into the presence of God and act like we haven't sinned and like we got our stuff together because the truth is, is none of us do. But the book of Hebrews tells us that when it's Christ's blood that covers us, when it's Yeshua's blood that's on that mercy seat, when we walk in that, this isn't an annual sacrifice. He doesn't get re-crucified every single year like blood, the blood of bull and goats. It was a one-time thing for all eternity. Before the foundations of the earth, before the garden, before that covenant, and all the way to the end if there's more covenants that come. He was. He is. And He will forevermore be. So tomorrow, in the middle of the service, we're going to kind of shift. We're going to shift because it's important to reflect. It's important to repent. It's, re it's important for us to remember what has happened and our role in that. But sooner or later, we have to understand that our role happened and caused but he has overcome because we have accepted him as our salvation, as our king, as our covering, as our atonement, as the greatest sacrifice to ever live. We also have to come to a place where we say, I understand this isn't a day of mourning anymore. It's not, hey God, will you please accept my offering? It isn't my offering. 
I didn't give it. He did it. It wasn't like I got the, the, the prettiest bull or the prettiest goat. I wouldn't even know what that is. I know a good steak, but I don't know what the prettiest bull and the prettiest goat is. I did nothing. I, I didn't pick it out. I didn't bring it. I didn't wait in a long line. I didn't go all the way to Jerusalem by foot. And I did literally nothing. And God came and did it for me. And I have to recognize that I did nothing to deserve it. I did nothing to atone for it. I did nothing This is where we should just be in surrender and praise of for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe or believeth, if you want to be technically correct, shall not perish but have everlasting life. You did nothing to have everlasting life. You did nothing to be cleansed. You did nothing to be set free. You did nothing. He did it all. And at some point in time, you have to go from the remembrance and repentance part of that and the somber element to the rejoicing and saying, I didn't deserve it. But I acknowledge that you were king. You were holy. You did it. You are the perfection, and I am grateful. I'm grateful to call you Lord. I'm grateful to call you Master. I'm grateful to call you my atonement, my covering. I'm going to end with this, guys. The fall feast for so many of us for so many years has been thought of as a judgment time. And I don't want us to swing the pendulum to the other side and act like there is no judgment and there is no atonement. There is. We're sinners. One of the greatest judgments that's ever been levied on the fact that we sin was levied on God on the cross. And so I know for the Christians in this room, when, when we look back at our denominational history, like, man, are you, is this dude trying to do two Good Friday services a year? Yes. Yes. I am. Because without the blood of Jesus, without the sacrifice of Yeshua, without the acknowledgement of that, without the profession of that, you are dead in your transgressions. You can keep the feast. You can keep the festivals. Come dressed in your white linen. It doesn't make you holy. It doesn't make you clean. I don't care what type of soap you use. Nothing matters when you look at the heavenly realm if you are what brings your atonement. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied for trolling. For everyone in this room, thank you for washing us white. Because the truth is, throughout the history of the humanity of people, he should have wiped us off the face of the earth many, 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 many times. And nope. He went into a garden. He went into a wilderness. And every time he was tempted, every time he was offered to save himself and to not save us, he said, Father, if you'll take it from me, that would be awesome. The CJF version. Father, it would be amazing if you would take this, this wrath from me. I've heard that the nails through the hands kind of hurt. Not really interested in it, Lord. Can you really take, please? But if you want me to go and get beat and get crucified and to lay down my life, to shed my blood, to not drink of that Passover cup again until we do it in the kingdom in the new Jerusalem with those who I'm dying for, if that's what you want me to do, if you want me to feel the anguish of being apart from you because you can't be in the presence of sin, if that's what you want me to do, I'm gonna do it. I'm not sure that this is what I want, but I will do your will, Lord. And he did it.
And he did it for every single one of you in this room. And so we don't have a temple. There's no temple here. You cannot bring bulls and goats tomorrow to Draper Park. It's like the only rule. Don't bring bulls and goats tomorrow. But I can promise you tomorrow, if Jesus is your salvation and you have accepted Jesus as your salvation, that just like the Israelites who brought the blood of bulls and goats to the offering, you will be cleansed. The scapegoat will go out. He won't see your name attached to that kingdom. And he will be your mediator, your guarantor before the Father in heaven. And so tonight to tomorrow, as we go into this time, I don't care how many times you've done Yom Kippur. I don't care how many times you've done the Day of Atonement. I need to ask you a serious question. Are you still trying to bring the blood of bulls and goats? Or are you going in tomorrow knowing that you're already covered by the perfect sacrifice that was given for the willful sin? Because if you're not coming in tomorrow understanding that God gave the greatest sacrifice on your behalf, if you're not coming in with that tomorrow, that's all that matters in the next 24 hours. It doesn't matter whether you fast. It doesn't matter whether you can praise. It doesn't matter anything else. If tomorrow you're not covered by the blood, nothing else matters. And so today, as we close in a time of reflection the prayer team's up here. The altar's open. Your seats are open. You need to make sure that that blood is applied to you. Because if you think you're coming in with your offering tomorrow, then that's going to somehow be sufficient. It will not be sufficient because you cannot guarantee your salvation. You can't guarantee and you can't wake, work your way into the kingdom of God. But Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, who died, rose again, sent his power to live in you. He can and as a guy who lives and sits and speaks at the right hand of the Father on your behalf, make sure your name is there. And it's not because you wore the right thing to church. It's not because you sang the right songs. It's because you fell on your face in humility and said, I believe you're king. I believe you're holy. I believe you can wash me white as snow. Come change me. If your heart is like tablets of stone, change me. If your spirit still dictates, change me. Sooner or later, you have to be changed and God has to live in you. And as long as that's not now, you have 24 hours to try to get yourself right with the Lord. We aren't doing confession. I'm not giving you Hail Marys. We're not doing any of that. Because just as much as his gift to me was intimate, it was the same way for each and every one of you. And you don't need me to get right with the Lord. You need to start talking to him. Worship team.